You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want you to remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. Just remain standing for a moment. John chapter 5. And I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt like a victim? You know, we talked about this last week, where sometimes in life we feel like a victim of circumstances. We feel like a victim in a relationship. We feel like a victim at a job situation. We feel like a victim in certain circumstances or situation. We just, we just feel like a victim. We, we, we feel like that we're just kind of caught in something that we have no control, no ability to do anything. And a lot of times what can happen is that that can, that can make us literally the kind of person nobody wants to be around. Now I want you to listen to what I just said. A lot of times what can happen when you and I feel like a victim, we can soon become a person that nobody wants to be around. And I want to talk to you today, and I'm continuing on last Sunday's message, on how not to be or what to do when you feel like you're a victim. So uh, I want you to look at John chapter 5. We're going to look at this real briefly. We looked at this last week in John chapter 5. And I'm just going to pick up. Let me, let me just do this. Let me pick up at, uh, well, just verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who had been there... For 38 years, there had been there an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And that's a good question for somebody who feels like a victim. Because a lot of times what can happen in your situation, your circumstance, is when you feel like a victim, you just feel hopeless and helpless, and before long you just, you just say, well, I, you know, this is just a cross I have to bear. This is, this is just the hand that I've been dealt, and, and, and I'm just here, and, I'm, gonna, and I'm, I'm, I'm just surviving. You ever make that kind of statement? Well, how are you doing? Well, I'm just surviving. You see, that's victim talk there. Now, Jesus said, do you want to get well? Verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. In other words, Lord, it's not my fault. I'm just in this situation. And the reason I'm in this situation is because nobody loves me. Nobody cares about nobody. Nobody's concerned about me. I don't have anybody to help me. I'm just a victim. You ever feel like that? Now, let's pick up. At verse 14. Now, verse 14, it said later, Jesus found him. That's after Jesus had healed him. Because in verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And later, verse 14, Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, I want you to look this way, and you're not going to like this. You and I are never an innocent victim. Well, now, you don't know the man I was married to. You don't know the woman I'm dealing with. You don't know the job I'm working. You don't know my boss. You don't know what I have to deal with. You, but wait a minute, Pastor. You mean to tell me that I've never been an innocent victim? That's exactly right. The only one who's ever completely been innocent and a victim of your sin and my sin is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell you, folks, there's not a situation that you and I are dealing with to where we could just simply do like Pilate, wash our hands and say, I'm innocent, I didn't have nothing to do with it. I played no role in it. You may not like that, but that is the truth. Now let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, dear Lord, for the power of your Holy Spirit to take your word. Dear Lord, speak to our hearts, speak deep within our hearts. Let us, dear Lord, feel the Feel the presence of you chipping away things that do not look like you, Jesus. May, dear Lord, we come to terms with the fact that there may be responsibility on our part in many situations that we feel like we're the victim. God, you want to set us free. And so, Lord, we pray that'll happen today. I ask you, dear Lord, I've already been on my face. 
Lord, I ask you to cleanse me of any word, any idle word, any idle deed, any glance, anything, dear Lord, that would in any way hinder your, your Holy Spirit. I pray, dear Lord, through the blood of Jesus, that not only is your messenger cleansed today, but that every heart in this room is cleansed and ready to hear. And Lord, we give you the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. <coughs> Last week we looked at this man, this, this man that we, we, we just said, you know, this man kind of fits a lot of us. He, he, he's a victim here. In fact, he's, he's been this way for 38 years and he... He even uses victim-type language in, in verse 6 when Jesus said, do you want to get well? In other words, do you want your situation, your relationship, your job or anything, you want it to improve or have you just become a victim and, and this is just the way it is? He looked at this man and said, do you want to get well? And this man in verse 7 said, Lord, my problem is other people. My problem's other people. It's the, it's the lack of compassion. It's the lack of concern of other people for me. I can't get anyone, verse 7, I can't get anyone to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And because of that, Lord, I'm in the situation that I'm in. In other words, Lord, I'm innocent. It's everybody else's fault. Verse 14, the Bible said, well, verse 8, Jesus said, listen, get up. It's an exclamation point. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. And boy, those are strong words. And we looked at that last week because you see a lot of times in that victim language where our thought is, well, I, I have no one. No one cares about me. Nobody shows concern. Nobody has any compassion. I'm innocent. It's other people's fault. Uh, I'm where I'm at, but it's not my fault. Jesus in verse 8 says, listen, get up. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Pick up the bed you made, that's right, take responsibility for your part in the situation, and then walk, move on with your life. Now in verse 14, Jesus, it says that he went looking for him in the temple. Jesus was looking for him. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, hey, I'm just going to tell you, the boss is looking for you. That's a bad feeling, isn't it? Hey, the boss is trying to find you. You don't know whether to go find him or go hide or her or go hide, right? You're, you're a student and somebody says, hey, the principal's looking for you. Man, I don't know about you, but I wanted to run and hide. But the real problem is here is that when Jesus finds him and he finds him in the temple, he says to him, he says, listen, you've been, the language here is unbelievable. You've been healed again. Now quit sinning lest something worse happens to you. And what he's saying is, sir, it's nobody else's fault but yours and you need to take responsibility for it. You see, and a lot of times in our lives, we don't want to take responsibility. We feel like we're a victim. We feel like we're innocent. And we know, listen, we know that in any situation, there is a measure of responsibility that we may need to take. You see, Jesus was telling this man in verse 14, Sir, it's your poor choices, it's your sinful habits, stop it. Let me tell you, a lot of people come up and say, Pastor, my marriage is in a wreck, my home's in a wreck, my finances are in a wreck, uh, my job's not working out. Let me tell you this much, and you're not going to like this either, but this is 35 years of counseling and leading people, pastoring people. I have never had anyone tell me that, that I couldn't look at them and say, Well, I'm going to tell you this much. There's a spiritual problem here at the core of that. In other words, let's take finances. A lot of times people have spent and spent money they didn't have, put themselves in a situation, and then all of a sudden they say, you know, God, I'm just the victim of a, of a bad economic situation. I don't make enough money to make ends meet. No, you don't make enough money to have HBO, Showtime, and Cinemax. No, you don't make enough money to drive the kind of vehicle you're driving. You see, the Bible counsels you to owe no man nothing, but you didn't listen to the Bible. You didn't listen to spiritually mature people that might help you work out a budget and get yourself in a financial position. You haven't tithed. You've been robbing God. And then you turn right around and say, well, you know, look at the financial situation I'm in, and it's not my fault. I'm just a victim. People will say that about marriage, but let me ask you this. How many people... You know what the probability of divorce among people who go to church every Sunday statistically in this nation is one in two. 
Do you know what it is for people who go to church every Sunday? Deeply committed Christians, one in 300. That's pretty, that's pretty good odds, isn't it? But you know what happens? A lot of times we're, our relationship, our marriage is in, a, it's in a mess. And the reason being is because we've ne- neglected the Word of God. We've neglected prayer. We've not been committed to the Lord's work and the things of God. We've not been in the fellowship of godly people. We've not incorporated into our lives godly spiritual people who have built a strong marriage, built a strong home. We've not, we've not asked for their input, their guidance. Listen, we're just literally spiritually not where we need to be. But you're blaming God and saying, I'm a victim. Now, I want us to look today at a man by the name of David. And, I, and I, we talked about this last week because David is the kind of man to me that when I look at his life, he takes full responsibility for his failure, he demonstrates a truly repentant heart and one in which God is able to forgive. Now let me make some statements before we look at David. For there to be healing, for there to be healing in your life and in my life and for us to leave that victim thinking behind, first of all, we've got to look this way, we've got to recognize our part in whatever's falling apart. We've got to recognize whatever fell apart in the past. We've got to look back. We've got to say, now, wait a minute. I'm, wait a minute. I'm not fully innocent. I wasn't innocent in that relationship, that marriage that failed. I wasn't, I wasn't completely innocent. Pastor, you're right. There were some things I could have done that I did not do. You may be a parent here, and you may say, you know, yes, you're right. Uh, there are some things that I could have done. You may look at your finance and say, well, there's some things, yes, I, I probably neglected to do. And, and, and you're right. So first of all, number one, recognize your part in the problem. It may be, now listen, it may only be 10%. You may say, you know, that, that relationship fell apart and it was, it, was, it was almost completely that person's fault. They ran around on me. They did this, they did that. But let me say something. Maybe 10% is your fault. Maybe 20% was my fault. Maybe, maybe it's 27%. Maybe it's 90%. You see, in verse 14 of chapter 5 of John, Jesus addresses the victim when he looks at the victim and he says, listen, you stop sinning and listen to that little word, or. Or something worse may happen to you. Isn't that frightening? It's as if Jesus was saying to this man, listen, you've learned a lesson, don't learn it again. Quit sinning. So what he was saying was, sir, recognize your part in the problem. Number two, don't be vague about your part in it. Well, listen to this. Everybody look this way. Well, if I did anything to hurt you, you know what I want to do when people say that? Blah, blah, blah. You ever had people come up and say that? You ever had somebody look at you and say, well, you know, if I did anything to hurt you, then I just want you to know I'm sorry. My friend, that is not even worth the breath that it took to say it. And let me say this. Never text and never email and don't Facebook. We don't care to see your dirty laundry. Or don't tweet. Don't send a tweet. Listen, don't do any of that. When it comes time to take responsibility for your part, be big enough and bold enough to say, listen... This is my part. I should have done this, and I take full responsibility. You know, I wrote down here, I can tell you exactly what I did. Listen to that. You hear that kind of language? When you say, I can tell you exactly what I did. I took him for granted. I took her for granted. I didn't take my responsibility in the marriage seriously. Uh, Raising of children, housework, home was a dump. Meals were never cooked. I mean, there's there's the gamut here. It It could be a relationship that went bad. Spiritually, you know, we were off and on. We toyed with private unconfessed sin. We seldom ever opened our Bibles in the home. We never prayed together and we seldom went to church. And we surely didn't seek spiritual guidance with our problems. I'm going to tell you this much. Listen closely. Sometimes we're in the situations that we're in because of spiritual pride.
So if, if, if there's going to be healing, then number one, we recognize our part in the problem. Number two, we're not vague about our part. We just simply say, this is the responsibility I have. I take full responsibility for that. That was my part in it, and I want to ask you to forgive me. Charles Stanley did this at a critical juncture, and Charles Stanley's divorced. I was told that when Charles Stanley announced his divorce that the First Baptist Church of Atlanta (laughs) applauded. Charles Stanley said at a critical juncture in his life when his life was just overwhelming, he said, I found four men, four godly men, spiritually mature godly men. Listen to this man who preaches to over 75% of the population of this entire country and all over the world. Listen to what he said. You're talking about spiritual pride. You know what he said? He said, I found four godly men that I trusted. And he said, I asked them to meet me at a particular place. And we met and we camped in this little cabin. And I made this commitment to these men. I said, men, I need you to come. I need your counsel. And listen to what he said. I will do whatever you four men tell me to do. You see, what Charles Stanley was saying is, I take full responsibility for my part in this family and this marriage and this situation, and I need the guidance of some other godly men with spiritual maturity to help me. And there's no spiritual pride here whatsoever. So recognize your part in the problem. Don't be vague as to your part. Number three, come clean before God. Don't Don't be vague with God. Be specific to the point, I did this, I said this, I neglected this. Let me give you an example. How many of you have seen um, Donald Sterling, the owner of L.A., the L.A. Clippers? Anybody? Well, if you haven't seen that on the news, then uh, you're living on another planet. But here you have the owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, Donald Sterling. Now let me tell you, if I was to counsel Mr. Sterling, this is what I would say. I would say, you need, to, you need to say something like this. I was wrong. I am guilty. I have a problem. I take full ownership of what I said. I have disrespected the players and the African-American community and no longer deserve to own a team in the NBA. I will voluntarily step down I will sell the team, I will give a portion to underprivileged children, and I will spend the rest of my life making amends for this. I ask you to forgive me, and I ask God to forgive me. Now let me ask you something, is that pretty good? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You can clap. He may listen to this. You see, now let me say this, God, look this way, God can change the heart of a racist. Do you believe that? And let me tell you something, they're black and white racists. I walked into a I walked into a business a while back. I walked into a business a while back to take care of something. And a young, a young lady came out, she waited on me, and then she came back out again. She stuck her head around the corner and she smiled and said, Brother Jeff, you don't remember me, do you? I said, uh, she and she gave her name, and then I remembered. She said, you baptized my husband. Immediately, I knew exactly who she was, and I knew her family. In the midst of a racial contentious time in Natchez, when I took a stand, her father-in-law brought great heartache to my life. He tried to get me fired. He wouldn't shake my hand. I even offered to ask him to pray with me. He wouldn't even pray with me. And she said, Brother Jeff, when he died, we cleaned out the home. And she said, we found things, racial things, she said, that broke our hearts. I looked at her and I said, well, she was starting to tear up. I started to tear up. And I said, but I want you to know something. I believe before your father-in-law died, he made that right with God. She looked at me and I said, because I went back to do a funeral. And when I finished that funeral, that man was in the congregation. I had come back from Africa. I was in Natchez doing a funeral. After I went out to the vehicle, all of a sudden, as I was speaking to the family, getting ready to go to the gravesite, and it was packed, 
There were a lot of people there because this was a very prominent family. I heard, I heard this voice. Brother Jeff! Brother Jeff! And I saw this senior adult man, this little old white man, running across the parking lot. And he was crying as he was running. And he said, Brother Jeff, he said, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I was wrong. You see, God can change the heart of anybody. I pray he'll change the heart of Mr. Sterling. Not that I believe he should only be a team, but I think he needs to say something. You see, and let me say this too. Be careful when you use that term racist. This past week I saw a godly, one of the most godly people on the, on, that I know on the earth that a woman looked at him and slanderously said, you racist. I, if I had been there, I would have wanted to slap her. Never use that statement. If somebody uses that statement around me and says that to me, it is the equivalent of profanity and I will deal with it. God can heal the heart of anybody. So, number four, get out of the victim chair. You see, we don't, let's take Mr. Sterling. We don't need Mr. Sterling to say, well, I was raised that way. Culturally, that's how I grew up. Or, or uh, I didn't know I was being taped. Or she did it to me. She set me up. What we need him to say is three words. I am guilty. Let me tell you this much. A victim has a problem when they look and say, I'm guilty. Does that make sense? In fact, I wrote down here, a victim will never say they're guilty. A victim's innocent, void of any responsibility in the breakdown of a marriage or a relationship, employment, or any problem. But a victim, if you want to leave that thinking behind, you're going to have to take some responsibility because victims are usually innocent in everything. Now let's, let's move on. I want you to take, your, take a left and go to 2 Samuel because I want you to see, I want you to see King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11... Chapter 11. And uh, let's just, let's see. In my 2 Samuel chapter 11, picking up at verse 1. And when you get there, just say amen. Okay, you're coming in, in, in waves. Because see, let me, let me give you David's situation here. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, the servant that he sent asked or said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. He committed adultery. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to King David and said, I'm pregnant. Well, we've got a stand, scandal that's on the National Enquirer there in Jerusalem. The king is playing infidelity and he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant. She's married to a man by the name of Uriah, who's a soldier. Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah, that is the husband of Bathsheba, when he came to him, he came back from the battlefield. David asked him how, you know, how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go to your home? You see what David is doing is David is doing what a lot of people will do. 
David is trying to cover up his sin. David is rebelled. David has disobeyed the word of God. David is blessed by God, given by God all the blessings. But the reality is, is that David, David's not an honorable man here. But he's trying to cover up his sin. He's trying to get Uriah home so he'll go to bed, so he'll go to bed with his wife to cover up the pregnancy. Verse 11, Uriah said to the king, The ark and Israel and Judah are all staying in tents. My master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He's a man of honor. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And the next, at David's invitation, he ate, drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he did not go home. David tries to get him drunk to get him to go sleep with his own wife. Verse 14, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? He's using history here. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, this is Joab, the commander, saying this is what you say to David. Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. That'll pick him up. That'll perk him up. What you're letting him know is your sin's been covered up. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of your king's men, some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Boy, he's hardened, isn't he? Press the attack against the city, destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. That was sweet. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now let's read on a little bit more. The Lord, said, the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and, and, and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and, grew, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared in his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Now, Nathan is setting him up. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to this poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to visit him. David, verse 5, are you there? David burned with anger against the man. He said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Wow. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in, your, in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You even used the enemy to do it. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. 
This is what the Lord says, verse 11. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you before your very eyes. I will take your wives. I'll give them to one who is close to you. He will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, are you there? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, underline that. I have sinned against who? Against the Lord. Now, real quickly, and we'll close in a moment. When you, when you look at this, first of all, it says at a time when kings go to war, and let me just say this, you and I are in a spiritual battle, and we, we, we never need to take any time off. David was, David was a warrior. He should have been at war. He wasn't. There's a danger. An idle mind is what? Devil's workshop. Curiosity killed the king. Number two, curiosity killed the king. You know what the king did? He just, listen, he had an idle mind. He wasn't, he wasn't where God wanted him to be doing what God had called him to do. Instead, he was just gazing around, looking over the top of the houses. He was in the palace. And he looks and he sees a woman who's bathing. Now Bathsheba, unbeknowing to her, I believe, hopefully, she's bathing. And the king begins to look at her. And a look turned into lust. And he sees Bathsheba, and finally he, he, he sends a messenger. And I want you to note something else here. In verses 3 through 5, the servant, the messenger that he sends, when David turns and says, listen, I want you to find out who she is. You know what the messenger says? Wait a minute. Isn't that Bathsheba? And he names her dad, and he says, and isn't she the wife of Uriah? You see, the messenger is trying to keep David from messing up. Let me ask you something. Are you willing to step in and speak the truth at the risk of a friendship? Let me repeat that. Are you willing to step in at the risk of a friendship and speak the truth? You see, Nathan would come and Nathan would confront David. David tried to cover it up. He did everything he could. He invited Uriah. He said, listen, he even tried to get Uriah drunk. He did everything he could to get Uriah to sleep with his wife and thereby cover the sin. But Uriah just wouldn't do it. He was a man of honor. So the cover-up fails and finally there's a confrontation. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 18, God sends Nathan. And note that, never go unless God sends you. Don't go mess it up. And I wrote down here, God makes no exceptions. God will never overlook our sin. God will never wink at it. God will never say boys will be boys or girls will be girls. Well, I understand. They're just going through a hard time. They're just a victim. You see, a lot of times when you and I feel like we're a victim, and I'm, when we feel like we're a victim, you know what we'll begin to do? We'll begin to excuse a certain measure of sin in our lives. Well, I deserve this. A lot of times a woman will say that, or a man will say that. Well, my, you know, my spouse is unfaithful, or they've been unfaithful, so why shouldn't I be? You see, that's always the voice of the enemy. That's what the enemy's trying to talk into your head. But here Nathan comes, and he confronts David, and he says, David, you've sinned. And David in that moment is nailed against the wall when the long bony finger of Nathan is in his face. Now I want you to listen closely. David had a, he had a choice here. David could deny it. David could excuse it. And that's a, that's a victim. David could have said, listen, we said this last week. David could have said, man, I'm in my 50s. I'm balding. My hair looks like paper. My Viagra doesn't work. I mean, I'm, you know, I've just got it tough here. You know, Abigail's running the affairs of the, of, the, of the monarchy here. She's all tied up. She's a businesswoman. Michael, I put her on the other side of the palace because she made fun of me when I, was, when I was dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. You know, things are not working out in my life. Joab can handle the battle. I'm just not very happy now, God. And then all of a sudden he saw Bathsheba. And the enemy said, there's a key to your happiness. Some of you in this room think a relationship is the key to happiness. Can I laugh for a moment? Key to your happiness is not another relationship. The key to happiness is a personal, vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. David could deny it when Nathan confronted him. He could excuse it and been a victim, or he could own it 
And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David just comes out and looks at Nathan and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Let me ask you a question. In fact, I wrote this down. What do you need to own up to in your life right now? What breakdown, breakup, loss, or something that you're going through right now that you need to take a measure of the responsibility and say, listen, I'm not completely innocent here. I did this and I was wrong. Sometimes we have to do that with a spouse. Sometimes we have to do that with our children. Sometimes we have to do that with our grandchildren. There have been times that I've had to go and sit by the bedside of one of my kids and say to my kids, I was wrong. There are times that I've sat my two sons down and said, I've watched this, looked at this, did this, and I was wrong. My kids, listen, there's no skeleton in the closets when it comes to my kids. They know everything there is to know about me. My son back there right now is nodding his head saying, Dad's right. What do you need to own up to right now? What responsibility may you play in the situation that may even be breaking your heart? What relationship in the past that you may have to go back and say, listen, I blamed you. I said it was all your fault, but it wasn't all your fault. I wasn't walking with the Lord. I should have never been involved in a relationship with you. You were not a believer. I was not a believer. We were unequally yoked. There were a lot of things. I take full responsibility. Last week, I felt like you didn't like the sermon. So I coughed my way right out of the door. I did. I didn't have that bad a cough, but I thought, I'm just going to cough and get out of here. I don't want to go back there. You see, were you mad? Are you mad now? I remember one time preaching in England. I made this statement. I say, we say in Mississippi, throw a rock in the pig pen, the one that squeals is the one you hit. Some of you were squealing last week, and some of you would be squealing this week. Why? Because we don't like that. But I want you to listen to this, and then we'll close. I want you to listen to David, because David takes full responsibility. In, 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 in Psalm 51, and we'll close with this, but stay with me here. You, some of you only come once a week, so you get the full, you'll get the full dose. Psalm 51, look at this, because this is victimless, what I call victimless repentance. In Psalm 51, Nathan leaves. You know what David does? Let me tell you what David does. David, he literally, after Nathan leaves, I believe David just did this. You ever do this? I believe David just did this. I believe David just collapsed. I believe that he was just overwhelmed. He, listen, he had not only committed adultery, he had murdered the husband of, of, of Bathsheba. He had not only committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had tried to cover it up with the death of Uriah. He killed Uriah. And you know what was even worse about it? After the time of mourning was over with, he tried to play the gallant hero. Go, go bring Bathsheba into the palace. We'll take care of her. Boy, would he. Until the confrontational voice of Nathan invaded it. And Nathan comes in and all of a sudden David is overwhelmed now. Now watch what he says in Psalm 51. I would memorize this hymn, this psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving, unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Are you hearing all of the personal pronouns? Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me, God, with his and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear, listen, this man can't worship. He can't even hear God. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed, his health is failing. Let you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. That needs to be the prayer of every one of us. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. 
Grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Now look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your way. See, some of us need to leave that victim thinking, put that behind us, let God teach us what God wants to teach us because there's some of us in this room that could give testimony and say, let me tell you what I did. In that first marriage, in that first relationship, at that job, in that situation, in that friendship, parenting, whatever it may be, in my finances, this was what I did wrong and I take full responsibility for it. And let me tell you how God's been working it out since then. What you're saying to this congregation is, listen, I'm not perfect. I failed. I've made mistakes. I fell short. And let me tell you, I had to own up to that, take full responsibility. Now let me tell you what God's doing in it and through it. Listen to David as he closes it out. Then I will teach transgressor your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. That's why we don't have a lot of worship. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. I love this. I dog ear this page and circle that verse. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. O God, listen to this. Isn't that a great promise? You will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. When you look at this and you see the personal pronouns here, David takes full responsibility. There is a principle here. God requires our ownership of sin. Listen to this, and we'll close. God requires our our ownership of sin before we can repent of it and he can forgive it. Now, did you hear that? God requires that you and I take full ownership of sin. Whatever our part is, we take full ownership of that, and it is only then that we can repent and God can forgive until we take ownership. Remember, a victim will not repent because they see themselves as innocent, void of any responsibility. Principle number two, we can't repent of sin until we own it. I'm guilty, this was my part, and I want to apologize. Now I want you to stand up, because we're going to close and you don't believe me. Let me tell you, what, let me tell you what's going through your head right now. You're saying, well, you know, if I go back to that that marriage or I go back to that relationship or I go back to that friendship or I go back to that previous job or I go back to that friendship or I go back to that situation or I go to that debtor that I bankrupt and left him holding the bag. If I go back and do this or this or that, if I go back to that person who who, who 80% of it was their fault and only 20% of it was mine, then I want you to know something. That to me just does not seem fair. They will use that against me, and I know what they're going to do. They're going to feel like that they got off scot-free. They'll, be, they'll, they'll just take my little bit of an apology, and they'll run with that. And they'll think that they were not at fault at all. Listen, look this way. It doesn't matter what they think. You do what God leads you to do. Now, I'm not telling you to go to anybody or any situation or whatever and lie. I'm not saying that you go and say, listen, you know, um, I I was wrong, I did this, and I want to ask you to forgive me. This was my part. I take full responsibility for that. You may go to that person and say, I want you to know something. I believe the majority of the failure or whatever it was, I believe is your fault. It's decisions you made, poor choices that you made. And you put us through a great heartache. And you put me through a great heartache. But I want you to know something. I wasn't innocent. I had a responsibility. I had a place. I had something I should have done. And I wasn't where I needed to be with the Lord. Some of it was my fault. And for that 10, 20% or whatever it may feel like, I take responsibility for that. Let me ask you something. I wrote this down. What do you need to take responsibility for right now? What part have you played in a situation right now 
that may be breaking your heart, but you had a role to play. Some of it may have been your fault. I, I, I had a... I, I, had a, I had a man, when I came back from Africa, that, I had, that he had hurt me deeply. Well, it wasn't when I came back from Africa. It was while I was in Africa. I was, I was in the house one day. It was late in the evening, and I got a call. And it was from a man that led an organization in Meridian, Mississippi. And he had made my life miserable. And it was a particular organization that is, a, well, I'm not going to mince any words and some of you may not come back after I say this. He was a mason. And he and I did not agree on something that had happened at a graveside. I loved him, he loved me. We just didn't agree. And, and um, he made my life miserable. I mean, I can't tell you how miserable it was. He put my family through great heartache. One day I was in Africa and the phone rang. And in Africa, most of the time when the phone rings, that don't mean nothing because you can't hear people, it keeps breaking up, you get static and everything else. Now I want you to listen to what this man said. This man said, Brother Jeff, and I thought the boy sounded strangely familiar. He said, Brother Jeff, he said, this is so and so. I said, well, how you doing, man? I said, I'm kind of surprised you're calling me all the way from from the U.S., I said, here in Zimbabwe. He said, Brother Jeff, and I could tell his voice was breaking and listen to what he said. Now, he didn't think he was wrong at all. He felt like I was wrong and it was probably the closest I ever came to being hit by another man physically. He said, Brother Jeff, he said, listen to this. Every time I kneel at the altar to pray at the church, he was a deacon and a leader. He said, every time I kneel at the altar to pray, I, listen to this, I see your face. I see your face. He said, every time I try to pray, I see your face. And he said, Brother Jeff, I too was wrong in how I handled that. And I want to ask you to forgive me. Thousands of miles away, a deacon and a pastor were reconciled. I was invited back to speak to the 100th anniversary of that church. I meant the 175th anniversary of that church. He and I hugged and shaked and talked about kids and grandkids and were our dear friends. Let me ask you something. Whose face is coming to mind right now? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know the enemy a lot of times in our life and situation and relationships and problems that we face would try to convince us and make us bitter, make us angry, where we feel like we were just innocent, we played no role, we had no responsibility, it wasn't our fault. And the enemy can use that to begin to not only affect a bitter spirit, an anger that begins to stick to us because we feel like we didn't deserve it, or else the enemy will turn an anger between us toward God. We begin to feel like the sovereignty of God. We begin to question God, when in reality we need to say, as the old Negro spiritual says, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, who stands in the need of prayer. There's some of us in this room, there's a face coming to mind. And deep down in our hearts, we know that right now we serve and we have a measure of responsibility and even the pain that may be hurting us. May we take responsibility for that. May we get before you and say, God, I wasn't walking with you like I should have and I ask you to forgive me. God, I said some things back years ago. I did some things that I'm ashamed of now that helped to make that problem what it is today. God, forgive me. God, I, did, I spent money I couldn't afford. God, I ran up debt. God, I hurt my husband. I hurt my wife in a previous marriage. God, I hurt my children. I, 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 I didn't give them the spiritual guidance. Look this way. Wow. Look this way. 
How many of us as grown adults may have to go to a grown adult child and say to them, I'm sorry. Your failure as a man or a woman is my failure as a parent. I did not lead you and guide you in the way spiritually that I should have. Forgive me. And turn. Repent. Our Heavenly Father, we pray, dear Lord, that whatever face may come to our mind, that we may put away the victim language, we may take full responsibility, we may say, I'm guilty, I'm at fault. Lord, when I use an illustration, I like to pray for that person. I pray, dear Lord, for Donald Sterling, that he come to full repentance. And I pray, dear Lord, that he would make a great, a great gesture that could bring great healing in this country and racial reconciliation if he would do probably about what I've voiced a moment ago. Take full responsibility and make a clear, full apology and then begin to amend his ways and get help. Father, whatever it may be, speak to us now. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you, Lord, it's warm in this sanctuary. I know people are hot. I'm hot. I'm hotter than they are. But Lord, it'll be a lot hotter for those that don't get this right. It'll be a lot hotter one day, dear Lord, for those that never give their heart and life to you. So if you're speaking to somebody here today, may they receive you as their Lord and Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let me, let me add something here because a lot of times what happens is people listen to a message like this and they think, well, I'm going to go fix this, do this, do this. No, please don't go digging around skeletons and a lot of stuff that's in the closet, a lot of things that God's forgiven you, you've been able to move on. I'm talking to you only about a situation or a circumstance where you feel like the victim. If you feel like a victim in a problem in your past, then get before God and say, God, help me to see my part in that. Because I'm trying to help you, and I think God is, trying to help you to leave that victim thinking, that atmosphere. Because let me say this, if, when you have that, you, you, you are miserable to the people around you. If you will determine in this situation, that circumstance, I felt like a victim, then go back and say, God, help me to see my part, my role in that, and sort that out, and then do what Jesus said in John 5. Get up, pick up your bed, and now walk. And what he was saying is, what that means is, now leave it behind, pick up, and move on with your life. You may say, well, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm the perpetrator. I feel like it was all my fault. That ain't right either. I know that's bad grammar, forgive me. But that isn't right either. If you feel like you're the perpetrators, all your fault, and you're the guilty one and they were innocent, that ain't, that's not right either. You didn't hear the message because the message says nobody's innocent. And you may need to understand that that other person shared some responsibility as well. God wants you healed. He wants you to move on with your life with joy, with the joy of your salvation. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.